0: I'd like to start this evening by following on from the comment this morning in the Q&A about listening to Dharma Talks. And um, no matter what style the Dharma Talk is, it's helpful to stay connected with your, your body during the talk. It's a it's a practice. Listening to a Dharma talk can be a practice of hearing meditation, but not the kind of hearing meditation where we completely let go of content, but the kind where we see how the content lands for us. And so I'd suggest during this talk that you stay in tune with your lived experience while listening to the talk. Because of the nature of my mind, the mind that I live with, this will be a fairly structured talk. (laughs) But don't let that fool you. It can, this kind of talk can take us a little bit more into our minds. And so I'd like to encourage you to um, stay in the body, stay in the lived experience, see how it impacts you. You know, the Dharma talks aren't so much about uh, getting the whole thing, getting the whole flow of the Dharma talk. There may be one or two words or a phrase that resonates with you, here and now. Or there may be a phrase that comes to you a year from now in your meditation, and suddenly that phrase makes sense to you and you can apply it in your practice. And so Dharma talks and the, mm, the experience of them, the working with them is not necessarily a linear process, even though this will be a fairly linear talk. So when the Buddha, when he was a a young adult, about 29 years old, he had a kind of a, a sense that there was something that he needed to discover. He had come into contact with suffering, what he considered to be kind of the you know, the, the, the problem of our human condition. This fact that we struggle, that we live trying to be happy, And yet, it seems as if it's endlessly slipping out of our grasp. And so he left home, he left his home and his family at about the age of 29, and went out in search of what he hoped to be an answer to this problem. And he spent about six years, I think, searching, studying with the teachers of his day, and finding that while they led to very peaceful states of mind, the teachings of those teachers, that they didn't answer his question. And so he kind of explored in his own experience, what is this, what is this suffering? What is this dukkha, the Pali term? That we usually translate as suffering. And he came to a, a very deep transformative understanding about this process at work in our minds. And he realized for himself the possibility that this process of. Suffering could come to an end. And after he had this recognition, this realization, he, he looked out at how people, and he kind of surveyed in his mind, how people were living. It said that he uh, kind of looked at what was going on in the world and he saw that people were living in a way trying to be happy, that their actions were oriented towards what they thought would make them happy. But from this new perspective that he had come to, this new understanding around what suffering is and how it works in our minds and our hearts, he, he saw that in their very act to try to be happy, they were doing the very things that would keep them tied to this process of suffering. And so out of compassion he began to teach what he had understood, what he had learned. This transformative understanding. So he saw in his awakening, his, in this transformative understanding, he saw that there were, was a new orientation the shift of perspective that we could bring that, that could be brought to our experience. A fairly subtle shift, in fact, when he first contemplated teaching, the, uh, the story goes that he thought, "You know, this Dharma that I have understood is very subtle, very hard to see. And I would try to tell people about it and they wouldn't understand and that would be vexing. So maybe I'll just sit here and enjoy this piece. And then the story goes that a a deva uh, came to him and said, no, for the benefit of all beings you should teach. There are beings with but little dust in their eyes that could understand your teachings. And so he began to to teach what he understood. So the framing of his teaching, not surprisingly, is oriented around this question of suffering the Four Noble Truths, which Mary spoke about the other night, are framed in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. And, not only are they, are they, um, you know, just, the, the Four Noble Truths are sometimes just stated as truths, you know, this is suffering, this is the cause of suffering, or there is a cause of suffering, there is a cessation of suffering, and there is a path leading to the cessation of suffering. But as Mary pointed to, Mary Grace pointed to the other night, the Buddha actually, the, the Four Noble Truths are actually practices. they there are tasks associated with each of the Four Noble Truths. And so the Buddha said we should understand suffering. We should let go of the cause of suffering. We should realize for ourselves the possibility of freedom from suffering. And we should cultivate the path leading to the ending of suffering. So this eightfold path is really—I I think of it—is the Buddhist prescription for happiness. He said that if you follow this, these practices, the eightfold path, really, I think, being comprised of eight. Eight factors that can be seen as practices, eight practices that support us in our journey. To understand and solve this problem around suffering for ourselves. It's not a problem anybody else can solve for us. The Buddha understood the possibility for himself. And in, in seeing the possibility for himself that he could be free from suffering, he understood by um, inference that this was not something that was com- confined to him alone, that others could also understand this and have this same transformative realization. And so, this, in this talk... I'd like to explore the Eightfold Path, which as I said, is a set of practices guided by wisdom to encourage us to act and train our minds in, certain, in a certain direction. And the Buddha said, following this path will lead us to this same understanding that he had. So I like to talk about the Eightfold Path, but not in the standard way, perhaps, that we might think about this, this being, in, you know, this isn't going to be a, kind of a standard Eightfold Path talk. I'm actually going to do kind of a very brief overview of the Eightfold Path. And what I'd like to do following that is to kind of explore how is it possible that this path does what the Buddha claims it will do how can it lead us to the ending of suffering? So that's the exploration I'd like to make this evening. So the Eightfold Path has eight factors in it and the, uh, one of the ways of exploring this teaching divides those eight factors into three groups or three aspects. The first two factors of the Eightfold Path are in a group that we could call the wisdom group. And these are wise understanding and wise thought, or wise intention. The second group is associated with ethical conduct. And this comprises the factors of wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, ways to bring ourselves into harmony with the world. And the third group in the Eightfold Path is the, uh, what I'll call the mental cultivation or mental uh, development aspect. And that's comprised of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So the Eightfold Path and its standard ordering in this way begins with wisdom. Begins with wise understanding, wise intention. It starts from needing to understand something about this dukkha, this suffering. This is the orientation around what the Buddha was trying to solve. And so the the wisdom that he is offering us is wisdom about this dukkha. What is this dukkha? I'd like to just speak for just a few minutes about this because we haven't really talked too much about dukkha itself. This Suffering that the Buddha said that we can be free of is not the suffering of physical bodily pain. That, he said, will continue. As long as we have a body, there will be that possibility that there will be unpleasant bodily experience. So that's not the kind of suffering that he said will become free of. But he did say that in his transformative understanding around suffering, what he realized was that mostly what we call suffering is actually a product created by our own minds. It largely happens to us because we are in conflict with the way things are. Gil talked about non-conflict being part of our path, being our path. Dukkha comes about because we're in conflict. Things are happening and we don't like them. We, want, we resist them. We, we, we want to get rid of them, fix them, change them. Or we want to hold on to them. We like them, we want to keep them. And because of the kind of nature of the way things are, trying to hold on to things leads to what somebody called rope burn. <laughs> You're trying to hold on to something that is changing, that's slipping through your hands, and it burns to try to hold on to that. You know, we think... One of our main kind of delusions is that we think that happiness comes from figuring out a way to arrange the world so that it's the way that I'd like it to be. That's, you know, what we think happiness would be. And so we end up pinning our hopes for happiness on the world on things that are completely unreliable. Rilke, the great German poet, expressed this in one of his poems. This is an excerpt from one of Rilke's poems. And we, spectators, always everywhere turned toward the world of objects It fills us, we arrange it, it breaks down, we rearrange it, and then break down ourselves. That's kind of the poignancy of our existence. We are endlessly trying to arrange the world, endlessly seeing it break down, and feeling the pain of that, and taking it personally. You know, what did I do wrong? that the world changed and it, I couldn't arrange it properly. You know, it's not personal, it's the way it is. And so, one of the key turnings or shifts of perspectives that the Buddha had, my understanding of this shift of perspective, is that he really began to understand this process of this being in conflict with the world as being the, the very uh, cause for that suffering. That when there's a sense of wanting things to be other than the way they are, in that very wanting, already there is dissatisfaction. It is the wanting itself that creates the dissatisfaction. And when we turn and see that, the mind begins to understand that it is its, its own doing that it's created that wanting. And it begins to understand that letting go of that wanting is a pathway towards freedom from suffering. And so we begin to see that the process of suffering is a process that's created by our own minds. The vast majority of what we call suffering, even suffering around physical pain, the vast majority of what we call suffering is created by our own minds. This is actually really good news. It may not sound like it, but it is. Because it provides the opportunity for us to change our minds. If it was inherently out in the world that this suffering... I mean, if it was something outside of us that created that suffering, there would be no hope. But it is a process in our minds that can be understood and freed. And so this wisdom, this is the, the wisdom, this kind of shift of perspective, this is the wisdom th- that we need to kind of have an understanding about. At first, just an intellectual understanding, just hearing the teachings. Very few of us, I think, would come to this understanding that wanting is actually the source of our suffering without having somebody point this out to us. Look at this, he said. Look at this process in your mind. See what happens. So the first two aspects of the Eightfold Path point us to this wisdom and at first it's a wisdom that we take in through hearing hearing Dharma talks, reading books about the Dharma. We start to learn some of what the Buddha offered. And if that resonates for us, then we begin to We begin to think about it, perhaps. Think about how it resonates for us. Think about how it might uh, be understood. And this is another form of wisdom. First there's this received wisdom or borrowed wisdom. And then we kind of take it in and we begin to massage it in our own understanding. And if it resonates for us, then we may begin to act on it. We may decide, you know, some of this makes sense to me, so maybe I'll try this. Or if you're like me, it was kind of like more like, well, nothing else I've tried has made any sense. I guess I'll see what happens if I try this. So the intention is formed to explore these teachings. So that sets us into motion. So it sets the path into motion. So these first two aspects, initially, are about having us actually take the first steps. We hear, we understand, and we begin to act. We begin to engage with the teachings. So the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, the second group in the Eightfold Path, is the um, kind of harmonizing our relationship with the world, the ethical, Section of the Eightfold Path: Wise Speech, Wise Action, Wise Livelihood. We live in accordance with ethical guidelines, harmonizing our relationships with the world, living in peace with other selves, with our people, with other people, inclining the heart towards non-harming now we've been engaging with these aspects of the eightfold path here on retreat every day you have been engaging actually with the entirety of the eightfold path and that's part of what i want to point to in this talk that the the factors of the eightfold path are lived they're not just an idea you're actually living them you hear the teachings right now. We're, we're practicing wise understanding to some extent. I'm exploring my, my understanding of the teachings with you. You're exploring it in your own minds as you're, you're listening. So we're exploring this, this first aspect of the Eightfold Path. All through the day we are committed to the precepts, to non-harming, to refraining from taking life to refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from false speech, refraining from intoxicants. And these are aspects of the components of wise speech and wise action. And wise livelihood. We are living wise livelihood here on retreat. I think the uh, the life of Essentially, you're, you're like temporary monks and nuns here. You've renounced your homes. You've come here to be uh, secluded. And you're living a Dharma life. This is a beautiful thing. You are living a wise livelihood every moment of your day here. The last three factors of the Eightfold Path the mental cultivation, the mental development aspect comprises the factors of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So why do we need mental development? This connects to the understanding that the suffering that we are experiencing the and suffering's a kind of a strong word in a way, you know. Um, the dukkha that the Buddha spoke about. It's usually translated as suffering, but, you know, when we think of suffering, we often think of something pretty big. And dukkha has a very broad range of meanings. It can mean anything from the, you know, most obvious suffering of losing a partner or, um, um, you know, being in a, an accident with great pain and misery... Or it could be the subtlest kind of just feeling things are just a little bit off. You know, that's not quite the way I like it here right now. That's dukkha also. We might not call that suffering, but it's dukkha. So from this understanding that dukkha is created by our minds, the Buddha's mental training helps to counteract the patterns that we have around suffering. So we look at our minds. We begin to understand how they work. We start to see how this process of dukkha functions in our own experience. This is a lot of what we're doing here on retreat. Moment by moment, we're looking at our experience. We see the way our minds are scattered or jumpy, we see when they're expansive, we see when they're contracted, we see when they're frustrated and angry and bitter and prideful and all the whole range of emotional states that we go through. We watch the processes of our mind and we get, start to get familiar with the kind of habits of our mind, the patterns of our mind, especially those mental habits that are kind of propelled based in not being aware and the habits and patterns that have been practiced over years in our lives. Patterns of anger or frustration or procrastination or disappointment or pick your, pick your favorite So we get to see these patterns. So the mental cultivation provides a container in which we can start to really see these patterns, see how this suffering is created, see how our mental habits work. And these three aspects, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, work together. Wise effort is the effort to stay connected with our experience moment to moment. It it takes some effort. And we also, um, informed by wisdom, informed by this understanding of what dukkha is, of what suffering is, we begin to see and understand that there's certain states of mind that tend to lead us towards suffering and other states of mind that tend to lead us more towards happiness. And the effort we engage with is the effort to cultivate those states of mind that lead us away from suffering and to let go of those states of mind that lead us towards suffering. Mindfulness. So we make the effort to be present and we're, we're making an effort and, and mindfulness is part of that effort. We're making the effort in a sense to be aware informed by this wisdom, this understanding, of what's helpful and what's not helpful. And so mindfulness keeps us connected with our experience in the present moment. It also helps us to understand and recognize which states are helpful and which states are not helpful. And the combination of effort and mindfulness together creates a stability of mind. Effort and mindfulness together creates a kind of a continuity of attention. And it's that continuity of awareness. It's like, you know, if you're just aware for just a moment, if you're just mindful for just a moment, there's not that much that you can really see very clearly. But when that mindfulness starts to be present for longer stretches of time, the mind, it's like the mind starts to be able to clearly see into how things happen. That that very continuity starts to reveal that process at work. We begin to understand that process through having the mindfulness be more continuous. And this continuity of mindfulness is the concentration. So the Eightfold Path... Is a set of practices, and we're practicing them all here. Moment by moment, we're engaged in this these practices. It's not abstract, actually. They support these practices support living a little bit more with more ease. And there is the understanding that these practices go further than just ease in our lives. They actually can allow us to experience that deeper shift of perspective that the Buddha offers. Freedom. Freedom from suffering. A deep, deep kind of happiness and peace. So what is this freedom? Sometimes we call it enlightenment. The Pali term is Nibbana. Sanskrit nirvana. The, um, The Buddhist understanding of what this freedom is, this enlightenment is, its simplest definition, it's actually really straightforward. The Buddha said that suffering is a result of greed, aversion and delusion acting in our minds. And that freedom from suffering is the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion in the mind. I'll read you some texts from the Pali Canon about the, this quality, or this, well, it's not quality, but this, what is this Nirvana, Nibbana? This is this is a set of different texts, but they kind of flow together, so I'll just read them all together. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This, indeed, is called Nibbana. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed, with mind ensnared, man aims at his own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and he experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, man aims neither at his own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and he experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. And for a disciple thus freed, In whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, and nothing more remains for her to do. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is her mind, gained is deliverance. This is peace. This is exquisite. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. There's a couple of pieces in there that I'd like to point to that particularly inspire me in those words. And one is the possibility the the definition, essentially, the defining of Nibbana here as experiencing no mental pain and grief. If you even just imagine what that might be like. What that might be like, no mental pain or grief. And the other piece... This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life. These two pieces together point to me to a understanding, a transformation that happens in the midst of our lives. And when I first heard about this enlightenment thing, you know, I kind of thought it must mean like, I was looking for like some big mind-blowing experience that after that, then everything would be great. Maybe I'd you know just be, you know, drifting off in some beautiful space somewhere. This definition to me immediate, visible in this life, experiencing no mental pain and grief, this is something I can envision like having that kind of experience perhaps in the midst of work so this is inspiring to me this possibility to me these these words say this isn't something otherworldly this transformation happens right in this life right in the midst of our day-to-day experience that that's possible to me that soo- that sounds like some of what is being pointed to here. The possibility of transformation within our lives. Not separating from our lives. Transformation occurring through our lives. So since this understanding of nibbana is that it's the absence or the releasing of, the cessation of, the ending of, greed, aversion, and delusion, we might ask or explore, so how does the Eightfold Path help us to come to the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion? Greed, aversion, and delusion are understood to be basically the roots of all of the kind of states of mind that kind of proliferate creating our experience of suffering. They're what we call the root defilements. Defilement is a translation of a poly term, kilesa. And maybe defilement sounds like a kind of a yicky word. But you know, great aversion and delusion. Be nice to kind of be able to let go of them. So they're understood to be the things that defile the mind or keep it from purity, to keep it from clearness. So defilement to me has that image of, you know, making something be impure or not clear. So there's a teaching around the defilements, that they're kind of like different layers of how they manifest in our experience. There's a layer, kind of the most obvious layer of how these defilements come up for us, how greed, aversion, and delusion manifest for us, is in our behavior, that we act out of greed, aversion, and delusion. That they, they come out, they're expressing themselves through hostility of speech or... Harshness of action. Basically, in ways that are causing harm in the world. Engaging in harming types of behavior. So that's one level or one layer of how these defilements kind of manifest in our minds, in our, in our, in our experience, through acting out. The next kind of more subtle layer of these defilements how they how they manifest is that they uh, come up in our minds but they don't get expressed in our bodies they don't get expressed out of action and so this is the arising of greed aversion and delusion the arising of anger of frustration of judgment of of uh, hostility of pride of uh, exuberance of boredom in our minds but where we're not having them somehow come come out into our behavior. So this is a lot of where our practice actually lies. I mean we 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 commit to a stillness of posture so that we can see this level. Essentially that's part of the practice that in the commitment to stillness, we begin to be able to see this level of defilement before it comes out into our behavior. This is pretty powerful, to be able to see this. The most subtle level of the defilements is something called latent tendencies. This is where the... um, the qualities, these qualities that are coming out of greed, aversion, and delusion are not being experienced in our present moment experience. They're not actually happening for us in the moment. But there's a kind of an underlying tendency for that that pattern to erupt. I think we all have a sense of this know, particular favorite patterns that we've practiced a lot in our lives. For me, it was a practice of anger. I cultivated anger very well. And at times when I wasn't angry, I mean, as times when that pattern wasn't active, there was a kind of a sense, and maybe you have this sense for yourself, too, that the fact that it wasn't being activated at that moment was partly a f- product of conditions that if there were something that happened that I didn't like it would be very easy for that pattern to be triggered so this is that level of what we could call latent tendency a kind of it's not active in our mind stream at the moment but it's mostly a matter of conditions as to whether it's coming up or not. It could arrive or arise almost at any time. It could be easily activated. So these three levels of defilement, we look at the three aspects of the Eightfold Path, each one of those aspects addresses one of those levels of defilement. And so the most obvious level of acting out is met by the practices of wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. Committing to those ethical precepts. We counter the tendency to acting out. You know, so in a sense, we, can u- we use the precepts almost as mindfulness bells. If we start to see the tendency arise in our mind to break one of those precepts, it kind of halts us. It's like, wait a minute, that's not the way I want to be living. And so it, the, the um, three aspects of ethical conduct support our not engaging in that level of defilement. This is pretty powerful, actually. This has a rebound effect on our mind as we cultivate the, the precepts as we cultivate these aspects of wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood, it has a, a positive rebound effect on our mind. That cultivating non-harming rebounds on our mind as a kind of compassion. Cultivating t- not taking what's not given rebounds on our minds as, a, as, a, as an honesty and a contentment with what we have. So the the practices of ethical conduct support our kind of reducing one layer of that, uh, of the defilements, the most obvious layer. The aspect of mental cultivation (coughs) of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. It also helps to counter this tendency towards this acting out. Because what happens for us as we start to observe our patterns and habits, we start to observe our favorite um, habitual tendencies of mind, getting familiar with them, as we get familiar with them, we start to see them before they lead us into action. As we get familiar with those feelings associated with whatever your pattern is, you know, anger, get familiar with those feelings, the feelings then become a trigger, or a trigger to wake up. That's what I've seen in my experience. The more I pay attention to those patterns, the more the patter- when the pattern arises, it starts to bring mindfulness along with it. And so that helps us to recognize, oh, there's that pattern. No, I don't want to act on that. And so we uh, also reduce the transgression aspect by cultivating wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. This aspect of cultivating wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration also counters the tendency to the arising of the defilements in our minds. One of the ways it does this is through the cultivation of concentration as we practice and begin to get a, a sense of the continuity of mindfulness and the mind becomes more steady, we start to have periods of times where the, the hindrances, what the qualities that John talked about this morning, they stop coming up. And that's a really great experience. You know, it feels really good when the hindrances stop coming up. So we get a taste, a little taste of what it's like to have that freedom from the defilements. But that's um, a temporary kind of freedom because it's conditioned on that continuity of mindfulness, it's conditioned on the concentration, kind of holding those tendencies at bay. But still it's very powerful for us to, to get a flavor, a taste of that freedom from those Defilements. The subtlest level of defilement, the latent tendencies, those require a kind of a radical uh, shifting in our mind, a turning. Because those tendencies, those latent tendencies, are kind of underlaid by a very powerful force of ignorance. And ignorance is not uprooted just simply by concentration. It takes wisdom to uproot ignorance. And this is where that first aspect of the Eightfold Path, the wisdom aspect comes in. Now the wisdom that we bring at first, that wisdom of understanding and reflection, that's not powerful enough to uproot ignorance the the wisdom that that wisdom informs our practice of wise effort wise mindfulness and wise concentration and as that wisdom and the mental cultivation come together we begin to understand more directly for ourselves the truth of that borrowed wisdom So we see directly for ourselves these moments of freedom. We see a a releasing, a letting go around how we've been clinging to these processes of suffering. So our view begins to change. So the path essentially begins and ends with wisdom initially an intellectual understanding, but that intellectual understanding, coupled with the path of cultivating mindfulness and concentration with effort, we begin to deeply understand the truth of those teachings, the teachings of impermanence, the teaching of unreliability, of not-self. So the mind begins to understand that the way that we've been trying to be happy, directly understand, this is not theoretical, this is not book knowledge. We see, in a moment, we may see wanting come up in our minds. We see that feeling of dissatisfaction that comes with that wanting. We feel the pull to satisfy that wanting and yet we watch, we observe. We may see that wanting vanish in a moment. And seeing that vanishing, we directly understand, uh, feels like being let go from a vice grip. We see directly in that moment the truth that it is the wanting that has created that dissatisfaction. It's not the not having of whatever it is that we wanted. That's not what creates the dissatisfaction. Has nothing to do with the thing that we think we want. It has to do with the wanting itself. And in that moment of actually seeing that, of having enough continuity of mindfulness and concentration, just observing our patterns, we see how they are put together. And in seeing that, the mind begins to release around them. We experience moments of insight, shifts of perspective around patterns. We may see in a moment, simple shifts, which I know most of you, probably all of you have had a kind of a shift around some difficult pattern. Oh, this is just anger rather than it being my anger, rather than it being something that I've done or need to fix or change. Oh, this is just anger. This is just a process. Becoming much easier to hold. That kind of shift of perspective of seeing anger just as a process. we see moments, little moments of shifts of understanding. And these moments help us to gradually turn our minds towards this understanding, the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, the understanding of suffering, the understanding that the cause of suffering is this craving turning our mind toward that understanding. Gradually, small moments, gradually, gradually turn our minds in this direction. It takes time. There's an analogy. I know many of you have heard this analogy. It's one of my favorite analogies. The Buddha gave around our practice. He he compared the practice of being attentive to our experience to he said, "Just think about a shipwreck." You know, and think about the parts of the ship strewn around the beach. And day by day, the sun, the sand, the wind, the water kind of work on those parts. You know, think of the rope, the rigging. And day by day, if you go back and look at that rope, you're not going to see much change in that rope. But come back after six months and try to pick up that rope and it may fall apart in your hands. Moment by moment, small moment by small moment, mindfulness, effort, concentration, supported by wisdom begins to wear away at the way we misunderstand how happiness can be found shifts our perspective and one thing that's helpful to remind ourselves about is that insights are impermanent we have a moment of understanding like that and in that moment i mean it may even be more than a moment it may be a few minutes or even a few hours of being in a space where you can just see your patterns and it's not a problem and it seems so obvious how can I not see this and then (laughs) a few moments later suddenly there's your anger and it's like oh that person shouldn't wait a minute. I'm caught again. What just happened? This is a phenomenon we all have to accept. (laughs) It's not a mistake, actually. It's not that we've done anything wrong. And sometimes we can sometimes second-guess our insights. It's like we think, well, it must must not have been real if it went away. But it it is, I mean, it is um, a moment. It's it's come together out of conditions that you've been able to, for a few moments, see and be aligned with how things are, with the truth of things are, and not in resistance, not in conflict with the way things are. For a few moments, you've been able to do that. That, while it, it doesn't stay that we can live in that perspective, for the rest of time. Most of the time, I'd say most of the time we have a shift like that and it goes away. But it has what it has done for us is it has taken that borrowed knowledge that we've learned and it has integrated it so that it is something that we have actually understood that it's no longer borrowed wisdom. We may not be able to live out of that wisdom, but there is a knowing of that wisdom. And what I've seen in my own practice is that little by little, the accumulation of those kind of openings has led me to be able to to kind of call on that knowledge. So it's like, oh yeah, okay, I see this pattern coming up. I see I'm caught by this again, but I don't take it quite so personally. It's like, yeah, I know that there's, there's a kind of a, a misperception going on here. There's a confusion going on. There's a delusion happening in the mind that it is caught by this. The mind can be aware of that because it knows this alternative perspective is possible, even though it can't live from it. And so we just meet our experience from that perspective. And over time... Over time it begins to be easier to see when we're caught by these misperceptions, by this confusion of where happiness is to be found. And slowly we begin to understand what it might mean to live free of mental pain and grief. Let's sit for a moment.